It is a pleasure to be worshiping with you all as we are continuing in our series, uh, Imitation Generosity. I think it's only right that before we dive into God's Word together that we allow Him to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message He has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have gathered us together as a family of faith this morning, that you might teach us what it means to truly be your people, to to not only have received from you, but now to give, to give with the same kind of generosity with which you've given to us. And so Lord, as we're looking at your word, we ask that you would indeed give us soft hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, So uh, a couple years ago, I came across this quote from Michael Jordan in which he was talking about his career. And this is what he had to say. He said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. Likewise, Steve Jobs, talking about his own career, had this to say about what it takes to truly become a success. He says, if you look really closely, most overnight success took a long time. And likewise, uh, Matthew Saeed, the kind of uh, world-renowned table tennis champ, said this. He says, marginal gains is not about making small changes and hoping they fly. It's about breaking down a big problem into small parts in order to rigorously establish what works and what doesn't. You see, the reason I share these quotes is because you talk to any leader, whether it's in the field of sports or business, anybody who's at the top of their game in any field, what they will tell you is that they were not born that way, that they were not an overnight success. Then when it came to guys like Michael Jordan, for example, we are talking about tens of thousands of hours practicing on the court. It wasn't like Michael Jordan was born into this world dribbling a basketball. No, he had to practice and to train to become the basketball great that he was. Likewise, Steve Jobs didn't just one day wake up and have this perfect plan for this company that he was going to create called Apple. No, he went through a variety of different jobs and careers, kind of tinkering around until he figured out that he could create a computer that was also user-friendly. That it was all packaged together so that all you had to do was plug it in and turn it on. Countless trials and errors before he got to that point. And if this is true in every other sphere of life, then it means that that's true of the Christian walk as well. That when it comes to us growing in our identity as followers of Jesus, what it means is that it is a process that takes time. That on the one hand, the moment you become a Christian, you are a new creation, okay? That's what Scripture says. But we then have to learn how to live out that new life. And that is a process that takes place over time, one step at a time. And so as we're looking at this particular virtue in the Christian life, this virtue of generosity, what it tells us is that uh, for us to truly discover what it means to have authentic generosity, to truly become generous people, it means that it's going to be a step-by-step process. It's something we actually have to practice and work at. And this is something that actually Scripture affirms over and over and over again. 
I mean, think about our theme verse for this entire series. It's Matthew 6.21. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I love the fact that Jesus puts those things in that order for that reason. He doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will go. Because that would give you the impression that, well, you know, some people kind of have a heart of generosity. They're just born with it. You know, and, and therefore that's the reason why they give so much. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What that means is that basically if we're going to train our hearts to become generous people, it means putting into practice giving our treasures away. That's the only way that our hearts are going to be formed. And last week we talked about the importance of the heart, right? We talked about how we have to have hearts that are prepared, prepared to be generous. But one of the ways in which you prepare your heart, one of the ways in which you actually learn to become a generous person is not waiting until you feel like it, but actually starting to practice generosity on a small, step-by-step, everyday basis. That's why at the heart of this series has really been this question, how do we become people who exhibit Jesus-like generosity? How do we become people who exhibit Jesus-like generosity? And to help with that, I want to look at somebody else's journey. I want to look at the life of someone that most of us would consider kind of a hero of the faith. And that is St. Paul of Tarsus. St. Paul is one of the most dominant figures in the entire Bible. If you actually consider his career, he wrote most of the New Testament. He is the subject of over half the book of Acts. When it comes to his impact on this world for the kingdom of God, he is right up there with titans like Abraham and Moses and King David. There are few figures in the Bible who are more prominent, more influential than Paul. And I think many of us would look at Paul and we'd say, well, there's no way that I could be like a Paul of Tarsus. I mean, this guy was a titan. He was a genius. He was at the top of his game. When it comes to living out the kingdom of God, he had it in spades. But the reality is, is that if, if we're honest and if we really look at Paul's story, most of us realize he didn't start there. He started someplace very, very different. Paul was, after all, a Pharisee. More than that, some of the things that we learn about Paul as we really dig into his biography and his background is that he was well-educated. He was actually educated under the great Rabbi Gamaliel, who was kind of also a religious titan of his day. This was a man who knew the Hebrew scriptures backward and forward, and Paul was one of his star students. Paul was a Roman citizen, but he was also a Hebrew by birth. He was fluent in both uh, Aramaic, uh, well, not just both. He was fluent in at least three languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. This is a man who is, who is really quite brilliant, but when it comes to him being someone who was sold out for the cause of Jesus, he still had a long way to go. Because when we first meet Paul, the very first place where we find him is at the trial of a Christian, watching As Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, was executed for proclaiming that Jesus was the Savior. Then goes on, and the next thing we find Paul doing is actually barging into people's homes and arresting those who had given their allegiance to Jesus. You see, Paul was a religious zealot. And he had taken it upon himself to stamp out this early uh, community known as the church. 
Now, he did this because of his religious convictions. You see, Paul knew the Old Testament scriptures, how the people of God had been deceived and and carried off into idolatry, worshiping other gods. And when he looked at the early church, what he saw is he saw uh, what he believed was a new form of idolatry. A bunch of Jewish people who suddenly were worshiping a man as though he was God. Worshiping Jesus as though he was the Lord. And Paul looked at that with all of his religious education and said, that is wrong, that is not right, and we need to stop it right now. Because I know that idolatry among God's people leads us into exile. So from his perspective, he was doing all right. From his perspective, he had achieved what every religious person should achieve. A hard-nosed dedication to God's law and to the purity of God's people. That's why Paul did what he did. And so to say we're looking for a hero of the Christian faith, you could not, I mean, the, the furthest place you would look was for a guy like Paul. And yet, in Acts chapter 9, something happens that changes everything. It says that Paul is on his way to Damascus and he's going there to arrest more Christians. He has the authority to do so, and as he's walking along the road, he suddenly encounters a man that he thought was dead, and that was Jesus, a man that he believed was not the Messiah, a man that he thought couldn't possibly be God, and yet here he stands before Paul and tells him that he has a mission, a calling, which is to proclaim the good news that Jesus is, in fact, the risen Lord, and this changes everything for Paul. Paul, who thought he was doing okay in terms of his religious life, suddenly comes face to face with the fact that he still has a long way to go. But from that moment on, he starts taking regular steps toward becoming the man that we ultimately know uh, him as today. A man who is single-handedly responsible for ensuring that the church broke out beyond its Jewish context. A man who was at the forefront of the mission to the Gentiles. A man who went beyond his own Jewish community to let pagan people, idol worshipers, know that they are loved by God and calling them to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we often read the story of Paul and we're just like, we think that the moment he had that Damascus Road experience, boom, he was off like planting churches in Greece. But that's not true. But actually, there was a long period of of Paul still wrapping his head around this calling. You know, he started with with his own community. He went into synagogues, and, and it was there that he would start to reason from the scriptures and sort it out and begin proclaiming to the to his fellow Jews that, that Jesus was the Messiah. And then it was many years later that he was invited by Barnabas to come to Antioch where Antioch was one of the first churches that was truly multi-ethnic. It had all these Gentiles who had now come to believe in Jesus. And as Paul interacted with these Gentiles and continued to teach and preach, he, he started to get a much bigger vision of God's kingdom, one that would ultimately lead him and Barnabas to move off to Cyprus, where they would go around that entire island planting churches, and eventually to Asia Minor, then eventually to Greece, and finally to Rome. It wasn't like Paul instantaneously was planting churches in Athens and in Corinth. In fact, it was almost a 10-year process before he finally decided to move beyond Antioch, move beyond the familiar, and become the church planter that we know him as. 
It was a long, steady process. And in fact, Paul was the first person to attest to this. And as we look at what he has to say, it's quite remarkable because in these words from Paul, I think we learn what it looks like for us to grow in our understanding of our calling. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, Paul says this. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, That comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul says it was a process, a process of learning to give up my old ways of doing life. Process of learning to give up the things that I formerly took pride in. But at the heart of it all, what motivated that journey of transformation in his life was knowing Jesus Christ. And it was out of a desire to experience the power of his resurrection. You see, I think that that final, I mean, that that. that Final line, verses 10 and 11. He says that I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. See, I think for many of us, we are content to know Jesus and look forward to the resurrection someday. We trust Jesus with our eternal life, but we don't trust him with our everyday choices. And yet what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I want to experience the power of the resurrection right here, right now. This is the reason why I do everything that I do. This is why I dedicate myself to growing in faith. In fact, at other points in the scriptures, Paul talks about this. He says, you know, I have to train myself. I have to beat my body like an athlete does. I have to learn to run my race. But I work at it consistently. Why? That I might taste and experience the power of the resurrection now. You see, when it comes to growing in the Christian life, whether it's in the virtue of generosity or the virtue of forgiveness, or the virtue of witness and sharing our faith, whatever it is, what Paul is saying is he's saying it begins by taking it one step at a time. There's a process we all have to go through. The first step in that process is we have to learn to be honest with where we are. Paul was pretty honest about where he was. I was a Pharisee. I was a zealot. I was somebody who persecuted the church. That is my starting point. But then he was captivated by a different vision, a vision of the risen Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He said, and I realized that, that, that my, my vision and where I was wasn't where I ultimately wanted to be. I want to experience the power of his resurrection. 
I want to taste and see how good the Lord really is by learning to live the life that he's called me to live, by learning to live the life that he's already given me. You see, the way that we grow is is not only we have to be honest about where we are, but we have to have a destination in mind, a vision of what God is calling us to. And last but not least, then we then need to take a step in the right direction. And after that step, to take another step, and another step, and another step. Paul says that's what the Christian life looks like. You know, oftentimes I think that we use the phrase Damascus Road experience in the wrong way. Say, I want to have a Damascus Road experience where the Lord just shows up to me and everything is different. But what Paul is saying right here, he's like, yeah, the Lord showed up to me and yeah, everything was different, but it also took some time for me to catch up. And that's really what God is calling us to. He says, look, if you know the goodness of God and the goodness of what Jesus has given you, That is a goodness that you can taste every single day of your life simply by walking with him. Jesus invites us to go on a journey with him in our everyday circumstances that we might begin to see just how life-giving the power of his resurrection is. I love how in John 10.10, Jesus actually says it so beautifully. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That starts now, today. And so as we wrestle with that question of what does it look like to be people who have Jesus-like generosity, the answer that Paul gives here is he says, look, what it looks like is simply by taking one step at a time in every area of your life. Asking God, show me the power of your resurrection. Help me to taste the goodness of the abundant life that you've given me. And so throughout this series, we've been asking you to think about generosity in a variety of different ways. To think about how you use your time, for example. What would it look like to take an honest assessment of your days? To actually sit down with your calendar and look back at the past seven days of your life and say, what did I do this week? And then to ask the question, Lord, what might it be like to experience the power of your resurrection next week? In what ways might... I take a portion of my time and and give it back to you so that you could use it in ways that you desire. Maybe that means planning out daily devotional time, just where you can spend time in God's word. Maybe it means needing to leave some margins so you actually have time with your family and your friends, your coworkers, and people in your community. To say, Lord, here's where I am. But I, I know that you desire that my, that my days, my days would be filled with the things of the kingdom. How might I set aside time and take a next step in terms of how I use my week so that I could begin to experience some of that resurrection power and then give that away to others? Or what if we were to, to consider what it means to truly be emotionally present and supportive to the people in our lives? To look at where we are currently and to ask a question, what next step would God have me take? I'll give you a hint. It doesn't involve that thing on the screen. Okay? Being emotionally supportive might mean that you actually realize, wow, I need to turn my smartphone off and put it away. It needs to not even be on, it doesn't need to be on the table. It doesn't need to be in my pocket. It needs to be in another room when I sit down for dinner with my family. Or when I decide to grab a cup of coffee with my coworker or my friend. To say, Lord, this is where I'm at, but Lord, I I know that you desire that I would be somebody who brings foretastes of the kingdom into my relationships. 
to give full attention to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers and our neighbors? Or what would it look like to actually consider our hospitality for a moment? To say, hey, Lord, how, how, would you, how would you have me use my home as a place where people can experience the hospitality of your kingdom? To take a risk and extend an invitation maybe to a person that you've met at church or to a coworker or a friend. To have them over to your home so that you might just spend time together, getting to know one another a little bit better. Or a place where you might then learn to share stories and talk about the things that ultimately matter. Or what would it look like to do an honest assessment of the material blessings that God has given you? Both what you have, but also the money that you make. To really sit down and look at your bank account for once. To say, Lord, here's, here's where I am. But how would you have me use my money? How would you have me use my blessings? What's one step that I can take so that I can generously give away to others so that they may experience new life? You see, in each of these areas, it's not an overnight process. It, it begins by simply sitting down with God and saying, Lord, this is where I'm at, but I want to experience the power of your resurrection. So teach me what that looks like in each of these little spheres of my life. Because I believe that when we do that, we're going to start to taste and see that the Lord truly is good. You know, as I've thought about every area of, of my life as I've learned to walk with Jesus, what I've found is that it's always the little everyday choices that ultimately make a difference. I'll tell you one story, you know, kind of related to our family when it comes to the area of being generous with our hospitality. When we first moved into our house in our community, um, my wife had this crazy idea that before Ash Wednesday, on Mardi Gras, we would actually host a punchki party at our house. How many of you know what punchkis are? Okay, some of you do. For those of you who don't know what a punchki is, if you've had like a Boston cream donut, you're getting close. Okay, because like a punchki is basically like a super donut, and it's filled with lots of delicious things, like Bavarian cream and jelly. It's, it's awesome. I know you're all getting hungry. There's donuts after the service. Okay, but she said, hey, here's what we should do. Let's just invite our whole neighborhood to our house to eat punchkis. That's just like our whole neighborhood, like our house doesn't have a basement. It doesn't have a second floor. Like this is it, this living room space. This is what we've got, this kitchen. And she's like, yeah, yeah, but we don't know our neighbors. We don't really see them interacting a whole lot. Let's, let's do it. Let's open up our house for a punchki party. Man, that sounded like a huge risk. Now all she was asking me to do was buy like a bunch of punchkis, and I'm talking like a bunch of punchkis. And bring them to our house and then unlock the door. That's all I had to do. But that seemed like a huge risk to us in our tiny space. But we went ahead and we did it. And I'll tell you what happened. We had a lot of fun. We got to know our neighbors. We got to eat delicious punchkis and just talk and, and hang out. And, and it ended up actually pouring rain that day. I was just like, nobody's going to show up. And a bunch of people showed up. And so on this like dark, rainy night that was cold, the day before Ash Wednesday, which is like one of my busiest days of work, we took a risk and we decided let's open our home. We've been doing a punchki party now for three years running. 
Because my kids have gotten into the act now. They're like, that's a lot of fun. So they've already been asking us, hey, are we going to do a punchki party again? And it's actually been the kids who've now catalyzed the party. They said, hey, can, can we not just invite the neighbors? Can I invite my friends to come to the punchki party? We're just like, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, and you know what? We should have dinner at the punchki party. Let's start making chili. We'll serve everybody chili who comes over to the punchki party too. So they have dinner and dessert. Like, all right, fine. They're just like, yeah, and when you invite the adults, you guys can, you know, have your wine in the kitchen and we'll watch, the kids will watch movies in the living room. What about that? And I was just like, you know what? What? Let's go for it. And every year we've now hosted a punchki party at our house. But here's where it got really sweet for me, as sweet as punchkis are. Here's where it got really sweet for me. This past summer, there was a, there was, um, I heard the doorbell ring. And I went to the door and, and opened the door, and there was nobody there. Okay, somebody, somebody just like did a ding-dong ditch on me. As they rang the doorbell, but then I looked down and there was this little package. And I brought the package inside, and I opened it up, and inside was a bottle of wine and a card. It was a card from one of our neighbors who's lived in our neighborhood for 40 years. They actually built the house that we live in. And here's what the card said. We just wanted to show our appreciation to you and Jenny because you brought community back to our neighborhood. We got to bring a foretaste of the kingdom of God back to a neighborhood. Our neighborhood has now started to do a lot more than just punchki parties. We do ice cream socials, bonfires, cookouts. Our neighborhood, we're actually starting to act like neighbors again. Now, that didn't happen overnight. We're talking about a three-year journey, and Jenny and I, we still have conversations about, eh, we should be better about inviting people over. We should be better about inviting people in our houses. It shouldn't be like just a once or twice or three times a year thing. Like, we got to find ways to extend hospitality. But man, once we started to do that, as big as a risk as that seemed, that was a lot of fun and it's been very life-giving and it's allowed us to get to know our neighbors a lot better and it's opened doors for spiritual conversations the same could be true of our finances i'll be honest you know giving is hard for anybody pastors included it's tough to sit down with your budget and and say all right are we really you know giving as much as we can that's hard for a long time, you know, Jenny and I were trying to pay off student loans and raise three kids and all this stuff. And, but we knew that we should be giving more. And finally, it was one friend here at church who finally said, I'll tell you what, Nick. Rather than just like going, you know, <laughs> all out, trying to give away like as much as you can, how about this? What if you committed to just 1% this year? 1% more than what you're currently giving. And then next year, give 1% more. And then next year, 1% more. And honestly, as we started to do that, every year we've been able to give more and more and more away. Now, we still got a long ways to go. There's still ways in which we can grow. We're still having conversations about how can we give, be more generous with what God has given us. But see, the thing is, is the more we've given away, the more fun it's been. It's been nice to know that we're supporting missionaries around the world. It's nice to know that we're supporting Trinity and the fact that this is a church that has four locations and is continuing to grow and reach our communities. I'm proud of the fact that we're a part of that. But it's step by step, one step at a time. And that's all we're encouraging you to do as a congregation is to say, Lord, here I am. Help me to take the next step so that I can become a person who is truly generous in the way that you are generous. Teach me how to use my treasures so that my heart might be formed around your mission. Help me to learn what it means to experience, to know you and experience the power of your resurrection every single day.
That's part of the reason why we as a church love to give you resources to help you with that. Uh, This morning when you came in, there was a resource in your bulletin. It's a resource that you guys have seen before. It's one that that we use every year. It's called the Generosity Ladder. And it's really, it's it's focused on kind of that financial area of generosity, right? But here's what I would like you to do with that generosity ladder. I want you to take that home this week, and I want you to come up with a generosity ladder for every other area of your life, finances included. I want you to look at your time and say, Lord, where are, what rung are we currently at on the generosity ladder in terms of our time, and what would it look like to give a little bit more? Or to think about your relationships and say, Lord, here's where I'm currently at. This is what it looks like to take a next step in being generous in my emotional support and being present to those around me. Or, Lord, this is where I'm at in terms of hospitality. And then to to think of that, what's that 1% more in terms of hospitality? And yes, to sit down with your finances and say, Lord, here we are. How can we give more away? And next weekend, we want you to bring those back. Because during our service, we're going to hand those in during our offering time as a sign of bringing those before God. And we're going to pray over that as a church. Because really, that's all that this is about. The generosity ladder isn't simply saying, well, I'm on this step and I'm good. It's rather saying, Lord, how can I take a next step and a next step and a next step so that I can experience the power of your kingdom in my life and that I can give the goodness of that kingdom away to others who need to experience it too. That's how we move beyond imitation generosity and truly join Jesus on a journey of generosity. Where every single day, every single year, we grow in walking with him, experiencing his resurrection life and giving that away to others. Because what Paul tells us, he says, that is worth it. No matter what comes in my life, it all pales in comparison to knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. And that's my prayer for us as well. Would you join me in praying? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you do indeed give us so much. You've given us new life. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to experience that new life every single day. That we wouldn't just wait until someday when you come again, but each day we would wake up and say, Lord, how can I take another step with you today in becoming more generous with what I have for the sake of giving life to others? And so Lord, we do pray that you would teach us Teach us the truth of those words that where your treasure is, your heart will be also, that we may have hearts that overflow in generosity. Teach us the truth of what you say when you say, but truly it is more blessed to give than to receive. Lord, may those words become true for us and may we see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven as we learn to live in light of that kingdom generosity here and now. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.